are in Luke chapter 19. And so what's going on here? The reason why this is called the place of the skull, I kind of said this last week, but as you're looking through Luke, um, as you're looking through Luke in chapter 9, verse 51, there's this, there's this kind of major turn in that verse for the rest of Luke. In Luke 9, 51, it says, the Hebrew idiom is set his face like flint. So it says in 951, it doesn't say that in, in English, but that's the, the Hebrew idiom. Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem, meaning like there's a, there's a turning in Jesus as he's been going in his ministry. From this moment on, he's going to be absolutely radically obedient to the Father's will, which is go to Jerusalem, go to die for the sins of the world. So from 951, it takes this turn, and it says, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face like he's absolutely going to be obedient. And so well, as he's walking down this road of this three years of ministry, um, he's a very popular character. And so we're joining him at Luke chapter 19. And as we're joining him at Luke chapter 19, um, we are at the height of Jesus's popularity. I mean, the pinnacle. Jesus is likely, at this particular time, one of the most popular people in the world. Radically popular. And you'll see, as you get to 1928, if you're having the triumphal entry, that's beginning of Jesus' last week. And so this is, for him, the beginning of the end. So he's set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be as obedient as possible to the God, God the Father's will to go to die on the cross for the sins of the world. He's entering into Luke chapter 19, verse 1, into Jericho, one of the most popular people in the absolute world. And this road that he's walking down, he's going to go from the most popular person in the world. And by the end of that week, that triumphal week, he is alone and completely by himself. So this road is going from absolutely the most popular to completely alone. So that's why we're calling it um, the, the road to Golgotha or, or the place of the skull um, because we're talking about Christ is radically being obedient to go straight to the place of the skull or Golgotha or where he's crucified for our, for our sins. So we are in night, chapter 19, verse 1. Um, I've never preached this particular text, so I'm, I'm like crazy excited because it's one of the most like uh, told stories ever. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump in to Luke 19. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for this time for us to get together and look at your word. Um, we know that these words in this Bible are your words, and so I pray that you would, you would move me out of the way and that um, you would come now and move in my own heart and all of our hearts with these words, that you would cause us to see who you are, to trust you more deeply, and to be moved just by your amazing amazing life, your amazing love for people. God, I pray that you would come now and help me. All the things that would not be helpful, that you would keep me from saying those things. I, I am absolutely, absolutely in need for you to speak through me. There, I cannot do this. So come now and speak through me and to all of us, including me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Luke chapter 19, uh, I've said this a lot of times, but in, in the books of the Bible, the way that the writers write, they're always really intentional. They're not just kind of writing haphazardly as they write books. They're really intentional. Um, they, didn't, they, they didn't write with chapters and verse divisions. So Luke 18 is all part of Luke 19. And if you look right here, it says, and he entered Jericho and was passing through. If you, if you look back just one little section in 1835, and it says, and as he drew near to Jericho. So 18... 
35 and the rest of chapter 18 and 19.1 are really almost telling the same kind of story, but the opposites. In 18.35, you see he enters Jericho and he heals a very, very poor man. And then if you go to 19.1, he has an encounter with who might be one of the richest men. And so as we see, as he's entering to Jericho, Luke is already wanting us to see that everyone is free to come to Christ, rich or poor. It doesn't matter who you are. Everybody come to Christ and find forgiveness in this man, Jesus. So that's kind of where we're going. Christ, Luke is already wanting to draw you in to the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a remarkable story of likely one of, maybe besides the rich young ruler, one of the stingiest physically, money, in the sense of money, corrupt people in the Bible, and yet he became likely one of the most generous people in the New Testament after an encounter with Christ. And so you're all likely very, very familiar with this story, but we're going to, we're going to study through it, and, and, and I'm praying that the Lord would, hopefully for all of us, even though you might be familiar, give you some new, fresh insights. So let's all stand, and we're going to read this, this particular verse together. The reason why we stand is just to um, show that these are God's words and we honor his word as we read it together. Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 19. That's a bad habit, Matthew. We spent forever there. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tech tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowds, he could not because he was very small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since also, I'm sorry, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. These are the words of the Lord. You may be seated. So, let's find out who grew up in church. Y'all ready? Zacchaeus was a... All right, y'all know it. Very good. So, you can stop. So, if, here, here's the thing. Um, if you just didn't know the words, and you're staring around, and you're thinking, what just happened? You should be. That was weird, right? That was very strange. But my whole point is this. We all know this story, and we all think of, oh, Zacchaeus, he's just a wee little man. And poor little Zacchaeus, he's vertically challenged, and so we should just have this, this compassionate nature towards him. And, you know, he's just a poor little guy who wants to see Jesus. Um, but that's not necessarily the case at all. Um, so let's, let's, let's look at it. Jericho. We're walking into Jericho. Jericho was Israel's, in this particular time, most powerful city. So the reader, as we're reading, and he entered Jericho, you automatically should have all these pictures. And I'm going to help you because likely we don't know, right? Israel's most powerful city at the time was Jericho. It was like a little paradise. Um, It was, quote, a place of fragrance is what it was thought of. A, A city of high antiquity. It had palm trees and rose gardens. Think Charleston, you know, awesome Charleston. But 
really rich. Think New York, but all the good things of Charleston. Like, so it's an awesome city because it's more like Charleston. Anyway, it had palm trees and rose gardens. It had aqueducts, so like, they had places to get water. A winter palace with a huge pool, a theater, a hippodrome. That's like a stadium for horse, rating, horse racing. Um, they had streets lined with sycamore trees. So this city had a lot of money that had been put into it, a lot of money. Jericho was also a major toll collection for points that were passing east and west. It was on a little river. And so Jericho was a very, very, very big, rich, little paradise city. And so how does a city this large with all these niceties get funded by taxes? It gets funded by taxes. And you have here, it says he entered through Jericho. So we're already thinking, all right, Jesus is going into the rich city. He's going into the rich city and he's passing through and there was a man named Zacchaeus and it says he was a chief tax collector and was rich. Um, Not one place in the Bible besides here, not one place is there any person ever called a chief tax collector. We have a lot of people that are called tax collectors. No one else is ever identified as the chief tax collector. Why is that important? Now, likely all of you who are finishing college or out of college, um, Tax collector is not on your job list, right? Like, that's not what you're thinking you want to do. You know what I want to do? I work for the IRS. That seems like a good idea. No no one's thinking that. And tax collecting in the first century, we already have kind of this negative mindset towards tax collectors or IRS workers now, right? Um, Because they take our money, and we want that back so that we can do what we want with it. Well, tax collecting in that time was even vastly different for us. Today, you just, you know, angrily fill out your thing or angrily lick the envelope and send it in. But that's not how it happens. Uh, Back then, you didn't send a check in the mail or do it online. Um, But instead, the Romans, who was in charge of this massive government from England to India, um, they would go into a city, take over the city. They would hire someone that was already a a person that that lived in that city. So Zacchaeus was an Israelite in the city, and they hired him to be the tax collector for them. And so he would go from house to house, and a native that knew the city well, he would go from house to house and collect the taxes. So there was no online thing. So it was vastly different now. A, a Jewish oral tradition said this back in, back in 2,000 years ago, said that a tax collector was so loathsome that they should not even be considered human, that it was not a sin to lie to, this ta- to tax collectors because lying to an animal is not a sin. So you can already get an idea of how low of a view they had of tax collectors. And don't miss this, he was a chief tax collector. He was the tax collector in charge of all the tax collectors. Um, I I preach, and so one of the things that, as I listen to sermons, I I, I remember more than anything, probably better than my own kids' names, I remember sermons. Um, I have six kids, that's why. So I I remember sermons that stick out. So I remember this Monday when Jordan and I were looking at the the text and we're talking about, you know, songs that fit with all that kind of stuff. I remember thinking to myself, I remember listening to a sermon um, by Matt Chandler probably eight years ago or so about tax collecting. And so Google's your friend, Matt Chandler, tax collecting, etc. you pull it up. And so I pulled it up. And the reason why I remember it, because he painted such a vivid, vivid picture about tax collectors and the negative, negative thought that everybody had. So in this sermon, he's actually preaching from Luke chapter 15. It's called the trilogy. If you ever want to listen to it, it's like one of the best sermons ever um, about the, the three lost things, the lost son, the lost coin, etc., lost sheep. And so um, in the very beginning in chapter 15, verse one, it says that Jesus is 
surrounded by Pharisees and tax collectors and sinners. And so he goes into this kind of statement, this long kind of statement about tax collectors. So I I wanted to read this to you because um, his description is so vivid about tax collectors. And actually, as he's preaching Luke 15, he actually talks about Zacchaeus. So it's very applicable to what we're talking about. So um, I'm going to read this to you. It's decently lengthy, um, but the way you're going to follow along is just just hear Matt Chandler's voice because he's really interesting. So hear that. I don't know. So anyway, listen, Uh, if you don't know who that is, then Google him later. The real weight and hatred behind tax collectors gets missed by us because we've been told that tax collecting was someone who just stole money from the Jews. Isn't that correct? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And that And the reason that Zacchaeus was so despised is because he was given permission to raise or gather taxes for Rome. So they would say, go gather, Rome would say, go gather $30 for me. And instead of gathering $30, he would gather $50 and he was allowed to keep the extra 20. And he says, isn't that correct? What you've always learned? That's what everyone in this room, if you have any church background that is told about tax collecting. And while that's true, he said, the truth, however, goes well beyond thievery of just $20. At the time that Jesus is walking the earth, at that time, the gospel of Luke was written, Israel is ruled by, ruled by Rome. In fact, my whole point I'm trying to help you see here is don't have pity on this wee little man. He's a ruthless man. The truth how, is, however, it goes well beyond thievery. It's ruled by Rome. In fact, Rome at this time rules from England all the way to India. Try to get your head around how massive an empire that was. In the end, Rome was ruthless, 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 was a ruthless, ruthless, ruthless empire that conquered the world by slaughtering hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children. If you want to get outside of Christianity and just go down to your local library, you can read about the ruthlessness of which, how, by which Rome ruled the world. They would walk into a city, build a statue of Caesar who was supposed to be God and say, bow down and worship. Now, if you would not worship Caesar, then they would just slaughter the whole town. There are historical accounts of cities having anywhere from 30 to 40,000 men, women, and children crucified outside of the city. I mean, can you get your mind around 30 to 40,000 men and women and children being impaled or nailed to a cross outside of the city wall just to remind people of the, peop- of the power of Rome? They were ruthless, violent, unbelievably pagan men and women who ruled the world at this point. Now, I want you to walk with me here. How do you police such a landmass from England to India without having anybody strike back at you? So for Rome to ruthlessly rule like this, they had to have a massive, massive, massive army. And how do you fund such a massive, massive, massive army? Taxes. In the first century, tax collectors were Jews who paid Rome for the right to gather taxes. And at this time in history, the best bet is almost 90% of a household income went to taxes. We think we have it bad. 90%. So think about it. They're taking 90% of your income, and as they take it, they're taking it to continually oppress you and kill your own people. That's what Zacchaeus was doing. That's why he's not just a wee little man. And he says this. 
90% went to fund these massive armies of Rome. So to the Jews who believed that God commanded that they would finally be a nation, these Jews who were a proud people, these Jews who believed that they were called by God to be a light unto the world, for a Jewish man then to purchase the right to tax the Jews in order to pay for their very oppressors to continue to oppress and kill them was unforgivable. Now, with this information, do you understand why the crowd grumbles when Jesus walks, to the, walks up to the sycamore tree and says, Zacchaeus, you come down. Do you understand why they gasped at this, why they were enraged at this? This man who was raising funds to keep us oppressed, to keep us slaughtered. Can you imagine the religious man in the crowd who had just seen his sister and her husband and family slaughtered two towns over by Rome, who knew that it occurred because this man or a tax collector like him was raising funds for the army. Now do you understand why the crowd is furious with Jesus when he says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. This goes well beyond you just took $20 from me and you shouldn't have. It goes well beyond just these taxes are unbearable. It goes well beyond money. You're talking about slaughtering your own family members. And this man is making it happen as he takes 90% of your income. So when we see, we got to feel all the weight of what Luke wants us to feel. He walks into Jericho and there's a chief tax collector. The only thing I would add to, to what Chandler writes is, is that he was a chief tax collector. He's not just a tax collector, which is everything he just described. He was a chief tax collector, the most hated and wicked man of his all. His height has nothing to do with anything besides he had to climb a tree. That's it. So this man is a wicked, wicked man. And what we're going to see as we look through these 10 verses is the awesome. And when I say awesome, I mean, we say everything's awesome. Like we eat a cheeseburger, and we're like, oh, this is awesome. Like the, the fullest sense of the word awesome, biblically, all of it, the fullest sense of the word awesome. We're going to see the awesome, you can put it up, the awesome salvation. Awesome work of salvation in a sinner's heart. The awesome work of salvation in a sinner's heart. Why would you choose sinner? Why would you choose sinner? Because in verse 7, as the crowd is grumbling, he said he's going, he's going to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So I want to make sure we understand the fullness of this word sinner. Sinner isn't just, um, Calvin says, this word is not to be taken in the ordinary sense as one who just kind of does something wrong. He's a sinner. He did a wrong thing. He says, instead... This is denoting a man of absolute, dis, of a disgraceful and scandalous life. Everything about him is disgraceful. Everything about him is scandalous. And everything about him in regard to those things is public. And everybody knows. He, he is a sinner, a disgraceful, scandalous man. And what I want us to see is this. As we've talked about just how wicked this man was, I want us to do our best to put ourselves into that position and try to see that Zacchaeus is no different than us. And if you're a believer, I want you to see the awesome work of God in your salvation and not just his. Now, you might not, and likely you haven't, lived such a horrifically scandalous, sinful life as Zacchaeus. Likely you haven't. But our sin is our sin, and it is no different. So here we are seeing here that a man named Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax collector and was rich. I mean, that he is vastly rich. Very, very, very rich. And it says in verse 3, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. That statement should take us back. We've just given this 
huge description of the wicked heart that he has. And all of a sudden, for some reason, this wicked, wicked man who oppresses his own people and sees them be slaughtered, heard the most popular man in the world is coming to the city and I need to see who this man is. What happens in the heart of such a wicked man when Jesus comes into the city and he says to himself, I need to see who this man is. This, I think, is the awesome work of salvation in the sinner's heart. And the first thing is this. The sinner is moved. I think the Lord does it. I mean, if you read all of the New Testament, if you read the letters of Paul, the, the happening that happens in his heart is God himself quickening his heart, if you will, the way the old theologians say it, quickening his heart to say, this particular man is someone that you must take notice of. So the sinner is moved to see who Jesus is and investigate him. Some of you this morning might be doing the exact same thing. You might have been invited with a friend and you are doing the exact same thing. You are coming here to see who this Jesus was. You need to know. And I say, investigate Jesus. Investigate him. He is absolutely open to all of your scrutiny. And I would maintain he will stand up against all of your questions. And in that will be shown to be one of the absolutely true that he lived, that he was the God man, that he was resurrected, the factual things, but also the more important things. Well, those are important, equally important, that he's also the most tender, loving, and merciful person you'll ever encounter. He's absolutely open to your investigation. Come now and investigate. And so we see here, he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not. Why? (laughs) Because he's small of stature. He's a short guy. He is vertically challenged. He has likely the Napoleon complex, an angry short man. The Napoleon Bonaparte, not Napoleon Dynamite. Um, uh, I had a, a roommate in college that was 5'2". He was, he was like this tall. Um, and he made, we, had, we had bunk beds. He made me sleep on the top bunk. And I'm like, dude, like, it's so much easier for you to get up in the top bunk. Can you sleep out there? And he's like older than me and kind of an angry guy from Jersey. He's like, no, you do it. So I, I, I can kind of understand. He's, he's a good guy now. I, as a matter of fact, this is such a side note, and I didn't even say this in the first service. This is how awesome God is, right? This, this brag on God second. So as we're in, 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 uh, in there, I was 18, he was 22, so I was vastly afraid of him. Um, and even though he was like really short, he's, he's a really tough guy. Um, and so I was scared. And so I would, but I would tell him about Jesus as much as I possibly could. You know, hey, you know what, you need to, you need to know who Christ, uh, it's as good as an, an really not smart 18-year-old could do. Hey, you need to know about Jesus. You should, you should become a Christian. Um, he forgive your sins. Just trust in him. And he's like, I got all that stuff. I know what I'm doing. He grew up Catholic, so he didn't have all the kind of categories I think that an evangelical has. So anyway, to say, I'm, I'm living in, in, in Fort Mill. This is like 20 years later. Living in Fort Mill, and I'm walking around in Kitty Land over in uh, Carowinds. And I run into it to Jim. And I'm like, Jim, what are you doing? And this is what he says to me. First thing, like immediately, Hey, hey, he called me Chambers. Chambers, you were right. You know what? I'm a Christian now. All that stuff you were telling me um, about Jesus, I, I, I went to a, I got a, a church and the guy was preaching and all of a sudden it all just became like clear to me. Everything that you were saying 20 years ago, all of a sudden God did it and I, I became a Christian. I confessed my sin, asked Jesus in my heart and I'm like, woohoo! 
I'm like screaming. I'm like, Christy, did you hear that? She goes, oh, no. We're all like celebrating. But anyway, uh, Jesus saves even like the little short guys in this, in this story and in my life. <laughs> I had to go somewhere. I had, I, it wasn't planned. Anyway, so here we have, here we have the smallest stature. Oh, man, where am I doing? All right, where, I don't even know where I am anymore. All right, so he's vertically challenged. Here it is. So why, what does he do? He can't see, so he does some crazy stuff. Um, we don't read this as anything bizarre. He ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. So we know the song. Um, this is an awkward thing for a, a man to do. In the, men don't run in the first century. They, they, might, they might walk briskly if they're really, really interested, but men don't run. We kind of run here. You can turn on Sports Channel and you can watch someone run anywhere you want to. But in this particular day, men don't run. Children run everywhere and there's no end to that. Like ice cream, ice cream, and they run. Like, but imagine if adults did that. I think it'd be hilarious, but that's just a side note. Um, but children, uh, men don't run and they don't climb trees. Like <laughs> they absolutely in this particular time don't climb trees. And so you have this pagan, wicked, wicked sinner who hears that Jesus is in town and he has to see who he is, so much so that he's absolutely intent on investigating Jesus, that he's going to do things, take huge cultural risks, walk outside of the cultural norms, look undignified in front of people, and run, and then not be able to see everybody's hip-checking him. I know you get out of here, short guy. And forget it, I'm going to climb the tree. And so he gets up into the tree because he absolutely has to see Jesus. So let's not miss the point here. Following Jesus will also cause us to take risks, for us to step outside the cultural norms and look undignified. Uh, don't miss here. I'm not saying that sinful. I'm not saying you need to be sinful, but we do need to think about not normal. Not normal. Let's just say it this way. What, what's God calling you today, right now? What's he calling you to do to take a risk for the kingdom? pull you out of the comfort zone of your cultural norms to make a kingdom impact. For him, it's, it's running and climbing trees, right? He's not a believer yet. But what is that cultural norm that we just have to be normal about to look undignified, like David danced when he couldn't help but worship for Jesus? What is he, what is he calling you to do? For us, it's different. It's certainly not running and climbing trees, but he's certainly, God is calling us to to step outside the cultural norms and, and, and take risks for Christ. So let's just, for Zacchaeus, he's going to do these things. He's going to say, all right, I want to investigate Jesus so much so that I'm going to run and climb trees. I'm going to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. And it's worth the risk of looking silly in front of all these people that I certainly have a position over by climbing this tree because I've got to see him. I've got to see him. So as we're talking about this awesome work of salvation in the sinner's heart. He's moved to finally investigate. But the second thing is he's also moved to say, the sinner says, I'll follow, I'm going to understand that following Jesus means counting the cost, breaking cultural norms, if you will, and counting the cost. This is number two. I'm going to, I'm going to take up my cross and follow. I'm going to be willing to do this. And so for Zacchaeus, he's going to climb the tree, get up in the tree, and look for him. <clears throat> and it says in verse five, and when Jesus came to the place that just where the tree, he was in the tree, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, we, we have to stop here. This is, this is unbelievable. There's nothing in the New Testament, nothing in the New Testament that makes us think whatsoever that Jesus and Zacchaeus have ever had any kind of encounter. Never. Don't miss. 
Jesus is the most popular person in the world right now. And there are crowds and crowds of people around him. Everybody wants him. Everybody wants his attention. And we always think, we read this story. um, Jack gave me this line between services. Um, We read this story as, Zacchaeus is looking for Jesus. But also, Jesus is looking for Zacchaeus. Jesus walks up into this crowd looking for Zacchaeus. Just put yourself in Zacchaeus' place. You're in the tree. You've never had an encounter with the most popular person in the world. And he stops and he looks up at you and he doesn't say, hey, you get out of the tree. He looks up at you and says, Zacchaeus, feel that. Wicked sinner, unbelievably righteous man, looks at me and he knows my name. And he calls me out by my name. We love it when people remember our names. And they shouldn't. We love it. They had never had an encounter. And he looks up at him. Zacchaeus. He calls him by name. Jesus calls his name. Think about it like you're Zacchaeus. You're in a huge crowd in front of everyone. What would you be thinking? I think we'd all be thinking, he just called me by name. Likely, he was called many other names. (laughs) Probably not Zacchaeus. One of my favorite names that Jesus has called in the New Testament He's called so many things, Messiah, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, all all things. But one of my favorite things is friend of sinners. Jesus highlights for us here that he is a friend of sinners and calls Zacchaeus by name. And he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. In the awesome, awesome salvation of sinners, we see that the sinner Here's Jesus, call his or her name. This is number three. And Jesus says, come. Come here. Come follow me. Come here. Come receive forgiveness. Come be forgiven. This is what happens when we're all saved. Christ, who intimately knows you better than you know yourself, looks you and he calls your name and he says, come. This is exactly what's going on here. Jesus is looking for Zacchaeus. And what does Jesus tell him? He says, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. What I love is right afterwards, and it says, so he hurried and he came down. Jesus says, hurry and come down. Zacchaeus says, hurry and he came. So Zacchaeus hurried. What Luke's trying to help you see there is even an unbeliever understands radical obedience, like immediate obedience, How awesome would it be as we as believers when Jesus says, do this, and we say, okay. Just immediate obedience here. That's just a side note. But he says, (laughs) this is so funny. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. I mean, Jesus is totally inviting himself to Zacchaeus' house. Like, hey, I'm coming to your house. That's not usually, like in our day and age at least, that's rude. Hey, I'm coming over to your house. I'm eating all your food. And I want to do all your fun stuff. What do you got? Um, I remember growing up in church, there was this guy, Chris. 
he had, he lived on the lake. He had jet, two jet skis and a boat with wave runners and skis and all this stuff. Every church after Sunday, I, I mean, just as absolutely breaking cultural norms as I can. Hey, you know what we should do? We should go over to your house and eat lunch and go out on the lake. That's what we should do. Every Sunday, as much as I possibly could. You know what, Chris, we know what we should do? <laughs> we should go over your house and get jet ski. It was absolutely rude uh, looking back on it. Um, but I mean, I really, really, really loved going to his house and doing that. And so like Jesus, I would invite myself to his house. There's a huge difference, right? There's an absolutely huge difference. Um, besides the obvious that I'm not Jesus. Uh, <laughs> for me in this particular time, and any of us, as we invite ourselves to things, it's usually, I would imagine, for selfish gain. For me, jet skis, kneeboarding, all that stuff. That sounds great. Chris, I want to use our friendship to have your stuff. Right? But for Jesus, it's the exact opposite, Right? For Jesus, I'm inviting myself to your house today. And yes, I might eat one of your meals, which you can absolutely afford. But I am going to give you salvation and eternal life forever. So instead of being selfish, it's absolutely selfless. He's inviting himself over to give salvation to a wicked man. I must stay at your house today. And I'm assuming when Jesus says, I must do something, it's, it's going to happen. He hurried and he came down and it says, he received him joyfully. He received him joyfully. This word joyfully throws commentators, cra- throws them in a, in a hizzy, fizzy, hizzy, whatever the word is. They go crazy. They read this and they say, this must mean that Zacchaeus had already come to faith. Zacchaeus must have already come to faith. So that's why he's doing this. And I just don't think that's the case. I've got at least two reasons. Let me say them. Uh, maybe there's more, but I only have two. Number, in verse three, we see he's seeking to see who Jesus was. So I don't think that he's already come to faith at this time. I think he's investigating. And we also see in verse eight that there's this radical change that happens to Zacchaeus. We read, he goes and gives half of his stuff away. And if he needs to fraud anybody, he returns it fourfold. So this radical change that happens those kinds of things happen after salvation. So this is two reasons why the receiving joyfully, I don't think that he's already been saved. I think it's something completely different, which we've, we've hinted at, we've, we've touched on already. What is it then? That's, what's the deal with, with, with Zach being so joyful about Jesus coming over to his house? I think for the first time in a long time, Zacchaeus has someone that calls him by name, which I've handed at, but also has someone that wants to be his friend. And it's joyful. For the first time in a long time, he has someone that really wants to be with him. Don't, don't miss this. Like, eating a meal with someone in the first century is a huge deal. We've kind of missed that because you eat Taco Bell in your car at 2 a.m. and you don't think that eating a meal is a big deal. You're like, I'm so starving. Let's pound some bell. It's 2 a.m. It's like going to cost us $1.50 for like 18 tacos. And so like, yeah, we're chugging Coke. And, and so like we're eating a meal in a car and it's no big deal. But back then, and, and some of you have this, whenever you, you invite people over, you have a nice glass of wine or whatever, and you, you have a big steak and you're like, oh, we're enjoying a meal together. We get what it means to eat a meal together. The, to eat a meal with anybody in the first century meant more than just eating a meal. It was I am going to associate myself with you freely and we're going to share this meal and it means that I accept you the way you are and we're going to be friends here. And so why is Zacchaeus so joyful? I think because for the first time in a long time, it was so striking 
and so different that anything he had experienced in such a long time that it filled him with joy to have someone take an interest in his life and want to be his friend because Jesus was a friend of sinners. Now, I think he does get saved. So let's ask this question. This is, this is out of the, the, the six-point outline or whatever we're doing here. Who in your life needs this? Who in your life in your dorm or your apartment building or your neighborhood or, or your family, your crazy uncle Bill, who in your family needs for you to reach out and for the cause of Christ, befriend them? Really befriend them. Really be their friend. Take an interest in their life. See them be filled with joy that someone, for the first time in a long time, reaches out to them and has them over for a meal. And you talk to them about what's going on in their life. And not just be filled with a meal, and not just be filled with joy, but one day hopefully be filled with Christ. Come to know Jesus. Truly be their friend. Truly be their friend. It's not, I'm going to be your friend if you come to Christ. Otherwise, I'm moving on. No, no. no. (laughs) That's not what we're talking about. That's not real Christianity. Why Zacchaeus is so joyful is because I think that this is what Christ does. And he just puts, that's why I say investigate Jesus. You'll find him to be the most loving, merciful, merciful person ever. So, he says, I must come to your house today. Zacchaeus is receiving him joyfully. And verse 7 and when they saw it, they, they are always talking, right? And who are the they? I'm reading just verses. Who are the they? I, I'm trying to get as many context clues as I can. The only thing I can see the they are is verse 3, the crowd. Those are the, the, they are the taller people than Zacchaeus. That's all I know, that the they are. Um, Calvin says that they are the townspeople, but he says even Christ followers. Even Christ followers are the they. And the reason why they're grumbling is because they are seeing the scandalous nature to this story. What is Jesus wanting to do here as he does this? The scandalous nature of this story is that to eat with someone meant that you accepted them. You're committing your life into a friendship with them. And Zacchaeus is getting this invitation from Jesus. Jesus is an extending to, don't miss this. Jesus is an extending this invitation to Zacchaeus to to share a meal with him before he's all cleaned up, while he's still the sinner. Jesus is trying to teach Zacchaeus and all the grumblers the difference between the gospel and religion. Religion, every other religion in the world besides Christianity says, change, clean up yourself, and then come over to this relationship with God and he'll accept you. And the gospel reverses that completely and he says God has offered you complete acceptance you don't have to clean yourself up come here wretched and dirty God cleans you up and accepts you because God cleans you God does this for you and as he does this now you have the relationship with Jesus that's been offered to you freely it's not clean yourself up and then God accepts you it's come over here let God clean you up himself and you are made accepted by the cleaning up of God This is Jesus wanting to put on display to everyone what the gospel is. Calvin says that the kindness of Christ here, and you have all these grumblers complaining, I can't believe Jesus is doing this. 
Calvin says, the kindness of Christ ought not to be blamed, but instead commended and not refusing his assistance to this wretched man to rescue him from destruction and bring him to salvation. So Jesus' kindness and your kindness as you hang out with sinners, displaying gospel goodness of saying, you don't have to clean yourself up to be my friend, is put on display. And those kinds of things should be commended, not murmured against and blamed. Even more so, Calvin has another insight regarding the murmurers. Um, don't, basically, the, his insight is don't let the murmurers keep you, if that's a word, from being an evangelist. This is what he says. I've been practicing this word all week. I don't know if I'll get it. With such magnanimity, yes, that means like magnificence. With such magnanimity ought his ministers, that's you and I, to be endued, to be filled with. We, our ministers should be with such a, filled with such a magnificent thought, of, magnificent thought of Jesus as to think more highly of the salvation of one's soul, the sinners, than the murmurers of which all ignorant persons may utter. Do not desist from their duty as a minister, even though their actions and their words may expose them to reproaches. So don't let, basically he's saying, don't let the murmurs of people wondering why you're hanging out with sinners keep you from hanging out with sinners in order for them to be saved. Now, you gotta be careful. I'm not saying hang out with sinners and indulge in their sin and become like them. If that happens, you need to pull yourself back into a Christian community to help you make sure that you're functioning healthily and being sanctified as a believer. But don't let those who don't do that, who think retreat, retreat from the sinners, don't let their murmurs keep you from hanging out with them. Remember, Jesus was a friend of sinners. And the word sinner here means a a man or a woman of disgraceful and scandalous life. And it says this. This is awesome. And when they heard it, they all grumbled. This is what they said. This is said in derision, but I think it's beautiful. The end of verse 7. He has gone in to be, they say it this way. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But I read it this way. It's beautiful. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. That's unbelievable. That's an amazing sentence. Luke 7, 34, the son of man is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Matthew 9, 11, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. Luke 15, 2, Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. And in here, Luke 19, 7, Jesus goes and is the guest in the man's house of a sinner. Calvin has this beautiful little saying. He says, while outside the house, men are murmuring Inside the house, Jesus is displaying magnificently the glory of his name. Because he's willing to go and be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Meaning this. We talked about this as we were studying through the big book of Matthew, like in 90 chapters. People never hung around with lepers. Because if you hung around with lepers, you received leprosy. Jesus was human. And so, consequently, if he would go and hang around with sinners, you would think he's going to receive the leprosy. But he doesn't. But more than that, it's not that when he goes around over there, it's just that he doesn't get it. The miracle of all miracles happens. The reverse happens. It's not that he doesn't get it. It's that he actually heals their leprosy. He takes away what's in them. 
And the same thing's happening here in the meal. In that particular day, you are thought to be unclean if you hang out with sinners. And that's not what happens with Jesus. Jesus goes to this man's house and he sits with him. And instead of becoming unclean like him, Jesus makes him clean. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So Jesus makes him clean. And this is where I get into where I think Zacchaeus comes to know Christ. He has gone in to be the guest of a sinner. So Zacchaeus was looking for Jesus, but Jesus was looking for Zacchaeus. And as he finds him, he says, I'm coming to your house. And I, we don't know, but we have to believe that in here, uh, Zacchaeus is understanding who Christ is in some sense. He hasn't gone to the cross yet, but it, certainly people were saved pre-cross. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, this is huge, behold, Lord, he calls Jesus Lord. Doesn't call him Jesus. He calls him this amazing Greek word, kurios, Lord. He doesn't call money his God anymore. He calls Jesus his Lord, his Savior, his God. This is where I think the change has happened. At this particular somewhere between verse 7 and verse 8, in that little happening, Zacchaeus comes to faith. That's where it happens. And now he calls him Lord. Jesus is his Lord. No longer money, no longer power, no longer status, Jesus. And so as we look at the amazing salvation, the awesome salvation in the life of a sinner, what the fourth thing that we see is that the sinner believes in Christ and calls him Lord. He believes in Christ and he calls him Lord. Let me make sure that we can see all this because if you keep reading... We can easily think that Jesus says you're saved because he does good works. Look what happens. Behold, Lord. So we have to remember that's all at the very beginning. You're my Lord. And then he says, this is what I'm going to go do. Lord, half of my goods, I'm going to give it to the poor. And if the other half I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it full fourfold. And then so he, he makes this big declaration of the things he's going to do now. And so we can all think, and Jesus said to him, oh, Based on those good works, today's salvation, I'm going to give you salvation. But that's not it. I don't think at all that Jesus is saying, oh, since you're doing good works, here, salvation. Because salvation isn't earned. It says, today's salvation has come to this house. And then he says this, since. That meaning, because something has happened in your life, salvation has come. And he makes this declaration, since he is also a son of Abraham. Now, when we read since is huge, it's absolutely huge because when we read since, we think, okay, Jesus isn't assigning salvation to Zacchaeus because of his good works, but instead he's saying salvation has come because you've, something's happened in your life and now you want to do these good works. And he's not also saying that salvation has been given to you just because you're Jewish. Now, when we read this, you would say salvation has come to this house since also he's the son of Abraham. It's easy for us just to think, Oh, Jesus is saying, you're saved because you're Jewish. You're a son of Abraham. That's not it either. Galatians 3, 7 helps us understand what it means to be a son of Abraham. A son of Abraham does not, in this particular time now, mean Jewish. It did, but it doesn't anymore as we're rolling down the train tracks of the New Testament. Uh, This is an exact quote from Galatians 3, 7. Paul tells us exactly what a son of Abraham is. Galatians 3, 7. Know then, K-N-O-W, know then that it is those of faith 
who are the sons of Abraham. It's exactly Paul's words. So a son of Abraham now in the New Testament is not someone who's just genealogically related to Abraham, that they're Jewish. Instead, it's a know then that is those of faith that are the sons of Abraham. So as you read this, you can read it this way. Today, salvation has come to this house since Zacchaeus, you are a man of faith in Christ. You believed in Jesus, and now, because of that, you're saved. And now that you're saved, you call me Lord. And now, because you've called me Lord, evidence of me being your, your Savior, you have these things happen in your life. Namely, all my possessions, I'm giving half of them to the poor. And anybody that I've defrauded, which is probably everybody, I'm returning fourfold. I'm giving evidence to what's happened. So the fourth thing we saw is that Jesus, uh, the sinner, believes in Christ and calls him Lord. But we also see that Jesus is saying that since Zacchaeus has believed and now that he's saved and today that salvation has come to the house of, of uh, Zacchaeus, it has brought about a massive change in his life and the way that he lives. Which leads me right into this fifth one, which is this. The sinner understands that salvation must bring radical, sacrificial change. Those who are in Christ, whenever we come to know Christ, it brings with it, for us, a sense of understanding that we are absolutely willing to have radical, sacrificial change. For him, restoring half of my goods to the poor, and I'm giving away people I've defrauded fourfold. But the same thing is true for us. It doesn't have to be monetarily. You don't have to say, therefore, my radical sacrificial change has to be with money. It can be a lot of different things. It can just be the way, now that I'm a believer in Jesus, these things in my life must be sacrificed. It could be, namely, like sinful things, or it could just be my security and people thinking of this kind of way of me, I'm going to throw that out. Radical sacrificial change means I am going to take risks for the cause of Christ. I'm going to stand up and say, yes, I want to tell you about Christ. It means I'm going to climb the tree and run. Break cultural norms and make huge risks, take huge risks for the kingdom. Let me ask it this way. What does radical sacrificial change for Christ look like in your life? Maybe you've been saved for 10 years, 15 years. Maybe you've been saved for 10 months. I don't know, 10 minutes. If you've been saved for a long time and you look at the way you lived your life, conducted your life, and then since then, and there has not been radical sacrificial changes made for Christ, I'm not saying you're not a believer. I am saying, what are you doing? Coming to Christ means being willing to say, cultural norms, I'm going to break those, not in a sinful way, but in a way that's saying, I will risk take for the cause of Christ. I will do huge, radical, sacrificial things. It might be money, but it it doesn't have to be. Maybe you and three other people on camp in your college campus just need to do some crazy thing to reach your campus. Like if we do that, it's insane. But if it works, man, it's going to be awesome. Or maybe in your job, just a radical 
mindset shift needs to happen in the way that you view your coworkers and you view people around you. I've always just been kind of hands-offish, but now the radical thing is I'm going to invite people to have meals with me and I'm going to really get to know that. I'm going to invest for an introvert that scares you to death. <laughs> like people in my house talking, I have no idea what to say. I get it. Like I'm thinking of the next thing. Uh, where are you from? And do you have any animals? I don't know. Like you, we're all struggling. Like for introverts, I know it scares you to death. Radical sacrificial change. Just trust the Lord. I don't know what it is. There, the Levitical law said that if you stole something from somebody and got caught, he was Jewish, he knew the Levitical law. You were supposed to repay them back that money and add 20%. He's returning it fourfold. And Jesus here gives no command whatsoever on giving money to the poor or how he's supposed to do it. Jesus just, this is what, um, I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to tell you the gospel. You're going to become a Christian. He didn't say live up to the Levitical law. Now Zacchaeus, the beautiful thing is this, is that Zacchaeus does all of this freely. The radical sacrificial change that he makes is not coercive by Jesus. Now, come on, Zach, what are you doing? For me, it's just freely done by him. He wants to do these things because he understands the gospel. So here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Those people that truly experience the gospel become like the gospel, full of grace, full of grace. And that's what's happened in the life of Zacchaeus. He's full of grace now. And I, I, I would say lives his life the rest, the rest of the time like this. Verse 10 is absolutely crucial. Because it's not just over. Like, okay, whew, I'm saved. Thank goodness. But verse 10 is, is awesome. Verse 10 for us is the reason why Jesus is here. It says for, well, you can stop and say, What's the whole point of verses 1 through 9? Why does Jesus go looking for Zacchaeus? Luke's wanting you to understand why Jesus picks the wicked chief of all people in this huge crowd, picks him out above everybody. Why does he do that? Why not help everybody else? It tells us in verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That is the mission of Jesus. That's his the point of the incarnation, that's the point of his life, it's the point of his ministry, it's the point of the cross, it's the point of the resurrection, it's the point of the ascension. The reason why he came here was to seek and save the lost. This is his purpose. Another place it says it this way. In Luke 5, 31, it says, uh, I didn't, it's not the sick that needs physicians, it's, it's not the well that need physician, it's the sick. And then he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus' mission in life is to call sinners to repentance. Or as it says in Luke 19.10, I have come to, say, to seek and save the lost. Now, we don't need to miss this. At the end of his life, right before the ascension, in John 20.21, 20, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says this, in the same way that the Father has sent me, parentheses, to seek and save the lost. That's my mission in life, to seek and save the lost. And he says, in the exact same way. Think about the way that the Father sent Jesus. It was radical. It was scandalous. It was amazing. 
became a, God became man, lived a life, and lived this radical, humble, poor, completely obedient life to the cross. And he says, in the same way that the Father has sent me to seek and save the lost, and he looks at him and he says, so I am sending you. That's John 20, 21. The mission of Jesus at that particular point, the exact mission in the same way is given over to his disciples. And he says, now you have it. You have the mission of Jesus. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go make disciples. And I'm with you. Always. So you now and I, along with those first century disciples, have been given Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost. Now, you, you don't have to go die on the cross like he did, right? He did that. We just have to tell people. But in the same way that God sent him, we've been sent. So the last thing I want you to see, and I, I, I've added one little parenthesis in this. The sinner, and I've talked about sinners enough because we're saints. Now the saint, now the saved saint, lots of alliteration. The sinner, now the saved saint, joins Jesus on his mission, here more says, to seek and save the lost. That's what our job is now. So this awesome salvation that we've achieved is not just for our salvation, but it's also for us to join. The capstone of our salvation is us going and doing the mission that he, that, he, that he came to do, namely to seek and save the lost. Go make disciples in the same way. Won't you join him on this mission? This unbelievable mission that he's invited you into to seek and save the lost. For those of you that are believers, we're, we're in the fall here. We're starting a new semester. You know, it's just something about starting that new semester in fall where everything just feels awesome. The fall starts, maybe you're not in school, but just pretend, you know, your work is starting a new semester <laughs> and you don't have semesters, but just act like it does. Our church has semesters, right? Let's pretend we're doing it. The fall's here. If you get out there at 7 a.m., it's like, oh, it's fall. And then like by 12, it's uh, summer. Like, but there's something about the fall. Like it's like new and we feel, oh, new beginnings. If you're a believer, this new beginnings is happening as we're starting the fall. Football's here, right? All kinds of awesome things are happening. Listen, in this season of new beginnings, take radical risks. Let it really be for you a new beginning to say, yes, I'm going to run and climb the tree, whatever it is. I'm going to take real risks here for the kingdom, for Jesus, because it's the season of new beginnings here. So for those of you that are Christians, don't don't hear this story and just kind of, yeah, let's go to lunch. Like, think about what does it mean for you to really embody this season of new beginnings to take radical risks for Christ this semester? This semester, what can you do? If you're not a Christian, you don't need to miss this. Jesus saved in this story a wicked sinner. What would keep you from coming to him right now? Nothing. This story is absolutely showing you nothing, no sin, nothing you're involved in in the past or even right now keeps you from being saved. As a matter of fact, he's saying, don't try to clean yourself up and come. He's saying, come to me right now 
and I'll clean you up, and that's what makes you accepted before Jesus. And I'm just inviting you, as we're going into this time of response, talk to me, talk to the person you came to. At Remedy, we have more songs at the end than beginning because I think if, we, if we've heard from God, we need to think for a little while. We need to respond. So if you're a Christian, think about what this season of beginnings would look like for you this fall. Think and pray, stand and worship. If you're not a believer, as we go into this time of response, talk to the person you came with, talk to me, and hear this. Jesus saved this wicked sinner. And he saved this wicked sinner. He absolutely will save you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story. Thank you that you show us that you are not afraid to break cultural norms, take risks for the furthering of the kingdom. And then for everybody here, they can absolutely, absolutely, as believers in Jesus do that. I pray right now as we worship and respond that they would think, truly think and pray how they can do that and that they would do it this fall. They would make a plan with their other people that are believers in their, in their community group or their church or whatever, God, and they would do it. They would just take an awesome, awesome risk for the, for the kingdom. And I pray for anybody here that's not a Christian, God, that they have seen just how unbelievably merciful you are and that no sin keeps them from salvation and that you don't call them to get clean first and then come, but instead you call them dirty and that you provide the cleansing, the forgiveness of sin. If anybody here doesn't know you, God, I pray that you would save them right now. We pray these things in Jesus' name.